I've got to say something nice about Stephen. I just can't think of anything to say. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> Stephen has been a very, very dear and trusted friend and was a tremendous shepherd, an outstanding elder for the Spring Meadows congregation. Uh, that congregation did so well for many years, and Stephen's one of the reasons why. Thank you for being here. Thank you for letting me be here. I do know y'all know a little bit about football in in, uh, in Alaska. Uh, one of the first NFL teams was the Eskimos. Do y'all know that? Uh, there was not a player on it from Alaska. Uh, they never played a game here. Uh, they never had a home game in their history of existence. It was just a ploy to, and the, they all wore these big, huge coats and. Uh, the Husky was their mascot, but none of them ever had anything to do with Alaska. So I always find that interesting. Um, <clears throat> so we're going to talk for the next, uh, t- t- tonight and then uh, three times tomorrow, and you're going to get tired of hearing me. Uh, I know that because there are several of the guys here that have already heard me for two days, and they're already tired of hearing me. Um, I'm going to try to keep this enjoyable and engaging and moving along, it's not a worship service, it's a retreat, it's for men, and we're going to try to enjoy this time together. As uh, soon as I was asked to do this, I knew what I would speak on. There are four lessons I'll present. It's not the first time I've presented these lessons. I love these lessons. They're not original with me. I need to be honest about that. If, uh, if you come away thinking, man, he really puts good sermons together, you, uh, you now know I don't. Uh, I got these from somebody else 30 years ago, and... Uh, have preached them so many times, presented them so many times, I feel like they're mine, but I got them from Rick Warren, who I often disagree with and who I do not appreciate his theology and many of his uh, stances and his direction, but who put together some really good sermons. So it's only fair I tell you that, right? So I I need to start by asking uh, your assistance with something. I have looked forward to this moment for a long time. Uh, I work, as Stephen said, with the Jenkins Institute. I travel a great deal, uh, 200 to 250 nights a year in a hotel. My brother Jeff literally lives in a hotel 365 days a year. His children are grown. His wife passed away a few years ago, and so he decided, I'll just live in hotels. It was cheaper than living in an apartment where he stayed a night or two and was gone. So I need some help, though, okay? Uh, how many of you have stayed in hotels before? How many of you have stayed? Everybody stayed in hotels before. And, and so you, you stay multiple nights in a hotel, okay? Anybody stayed multiple nights, more than one night in a hotel consecutively, the same hotel, okay? So you get there, and you, you go to the bathroom, and in the bathroom there's a little bottle of shampoo, a little bottle of conditioner, a little bottle of hand lotion, um, maybe a, 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 a wet wipe, a handy wipe, and a bar of soap, maybe two bars of soap, okay? So, yeah, so, so yeah, don't, so you, you, you stay there. The second night, they come, this is pre-pandemic, they come after the first night and clean your room. And they, they leave you, What? Another bottle of shampoo, 
another bottle of conditioner, and some more soap, right? And you stay a third night, and they leave you, and you, you don't, you're still using that same bar of soap, right? And the shampoo's more than one use thing. So the third night, you get a third bottle of shampoo, a third bar of soap. <clears throat> when you leave, and you're packing up, and there are two bars of soap unopened there and two bottles of shampoo unopened there. I just need an opinion here, just an opinion. I'm not going to lead you any direction. If you take those two bars of soap and those two bottles of shampoo and put them in your bag and leave with them, how many of you believe that you're stealing from the hotel? How many of you believe you're stealing from the hotel? So only one person in this room believes you're stealing from a hotel. You're not, are you? I take those two, but that's another story. I didn't <laughs> the pillows are nice, you know, and <laughs> the lampshades are good. <laughs> so we have this ongoing argument. I videotape people all the time at hotels asking them that question. I said that they never say you're stealing. So just I, now we have confirmation from a group of godly men, <laughs> one versus 40-something, Okay. So you think it's a sin not to take them. Okay, thank you. Andrew, right, Andrew? Yeah. What? Drew. My son, I have a son named Andrew, so I should better remember that. He's, he's trouble too. Okay, if you have your Bible open to the book of Judges, probably not where you thought we'd go tonight. We're going to be in Judges most of the time the next couple of days. I'm excited about this. It's an exciting moment to me. Because I love this story. Judges chapter 6. And I want to tell you that I know something about all of us as men. Whether we want to admit it or not, we did not become Christians. We did not make the most important decision that any human makes. We did not say with our lips the most important thing we ever said in our life. I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God to live average lives and to be average Christians. We didn't do it thinking, oh, I'm going to just be a guy that sits in a pew and never do anything for the Lord. We did it planning on serving the Lord, wanting the Lord to do something great with our life. But time goes on, doesn't it? Time goes on. And we make mistakes. And we're not sure sometimes if God forgives us. And we do something that we're really ashamed of. It really embarrasses us. It is against everything we believe. And we think, why would God use me? And we, we realize our own fallibilities, our own insecurities, our own besetting sins, Hebrews chapter 11 we'll talk about, chapter 12 we'll talk about. The sin that so easily besets us. I've got an ongoing debate with a preacher friend of mine over whether that is a sin that haunts each individual, tailor-made by Satan for you. He tempts me with certain things or whether it's any sin that you commit. I believe it's for every individual. There are sins that 
you're 60 or 70 or 80 years old and they're still the same things that plagued you when you were 20 and 30. And it's God's grace that gets you through that. But because you, that sin keeps popping its ugly head up in your life, you begin to think that, why would God use me? I mean, if he could, why, even if he could, why would he? And what I want to tell you tonight, and going forward in this series, is that God has a vested interest in using fallible people, ordinary people. And I want to talk to you about what God can do through ordinary you, what God can do with ordinary lives. And the first lesson is going to be about how God takes a, a zero and makes them into a hero, how God takes a coward and makes them into a champion, how God takes a nobody and makes them into a national celebrity. That's the story we're going to talk about. And when this story begins, we find the Midianites, one of God's enemies, have encompassed the Israelite camp, 135,000 of them. And the Israelites are scared to death. And our boy we're going to meet tonight is named Gideon. You know Gideon? He's not the guy that puts the Bibles in the hotel room. It's a different Gideon. <laughs> a lot of young guys here, aren't you? <laughs> if you open the drawer beside the bed, there's a Bible that says Gideon. Okay. <clears throat> He's a farm boy who, against all odds, saves his nation. Israel is at one of its low points, and we'll talk more about that in a few minutes. And uh, they've come in like a, a swarm of locusts, 135,000 of them, and they forced the Israelites into caves. And when we meet Gideon, he's doing something rather odd. Are any of you, uh, this, is, this is an odd question probably to ask this audience, but are any of you farmers? Used to be? What did you grow? Okay, I don't know what, how any of that grows. So <laughs> I was never a farmer. When we find Gideon, he's threshing wheat. Tony, do you know how to thresh wheat? You've seen it? Never done it. So wheat is not at all like corn, but in this way it is. It has an outer shell. With corn, you have to peel it away with... With, with, with wheat, with grain, it's like a hus. It's a cover. And in those days, the way they would thresh wheat is they would take a stalk of wheat and they'd hit it on the ground and they'd fling it through the air and hit it on the other side of the ground. And when it hit the ground, it loosened the outer shell and when they flung it through the air, the wind would cause the hus to fly away. Reference to Psalms chapter 1, if you know the text there. When we meet our boy Gideon, he's threshing wheat. If you were going to thresh wheat, where would you thresh wheat? It's a simple answer. Well, there's wind out in the open. Gideon is threshing wheat in a wine press. 
for fear of the Midianites. He's trying to get a little food for his family that's hiding out. And he's threshing wheat. Gideon, timid, scared to death. Psychologists today would tell us they had an inferiority complex. And if someone will read for me Judges chapter 6 and verse 11, and before you read, tell your name and what translation you're reading from. I don't care who does it. All right. Now read verse 12. Okay, so there's a story. And it's kind of odd. Gideon, the chicken hearted. <laughs> Thank you. I'll ask for other sound effects later. Is. Scared to death. Now, anybody know when you read that phrase, the angel of the Lord, what it means? I have a friend down in the great state of Alabama. <clears throat> there you go. It's <laughs> one. Who says any time in the Old Testament you read the phrase, the angel of the Lord, it is the Lord himself, that is Jesus. I can't prove that, but his study says that's the case. But regardless, this is one of the Lord's folks. And he says to Gideon, Gideon, you are a mighty man of, no, valiant warrior. Anybody have a different translation? Mighty man of valor. Anybody have something else? Mighty warrior. All right. Anybody have anything else? So if, if you're describing Gideon from what you know about verse 11, how would you describe him in verse 12? You wouldn't describe him as a mighty man of warrior. He's scared to death. But the Lord sees something he doesn't see. And what I want to suggest to you is that when the Lord looks at you, he sees things you don't see. I am privileged every year to stand in front of a group of around 12,000 young people and that's all I can do to hold back the tears sometimes. To think what the Lord could do with 12,000 committed young people that gave their life to him and lived for him the rest of their life. I mean, it changed the world through 12 ordinary men. They were, you remember, don't you? They were fishermen. <laughs> and they weren't very good fishermen. Because every time we find them, they're either mending their nets or they've been fishing all night and hadn't caught anything. What can he do with them? And then the question becomes, what can he do with you? So, what is the process that God uses to change a person? Four steps. You ready? If you're taking notes, a little notebook they provided that's so lovely and beautiful, you can write them down. Point number one. Step number one. Affirmation. 
If God wants to use you, there's a step of affirmation. And I would write out beside that, he will encourage you. The Lord sees your potential, and he wants you to see it as well. And when the Lord wants to work in your life, it starts by changing your view of you. Somebody says, how did you do that? Well, it doesn't do it the same way it did with Gideon. There's different styles. But you think of John writing. Behold, we're now the children of God, beloved in the Lord, a mighty people, Peter wrote. He sees something we don't see. He saw Gideon's potential. God affirmed Gideon. God said, Gideon, you're a mighty warrior. Whoa, wait a minute, God. In fact, I'm going to loosely translate. That's what he says in verse 15. Remember, uh, Willis, what you're talking about? That's what Gideon says in verse 15. Somebody else read verse 15. Tell me your name and translation you're reading from, please. God, I'm from the smallest tribe, tribe of Benjamin. I'm from a little place called Ophrah, city called Ophrah, right? Anybody have a, an asterisk beside that and tells you what the name of Ophrah means in your Bible? You know, some people, have, you know, sometimes they'll tell you the meaning of a name, a town or something. The, 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 town, the name Ophrah, it's not Oprah, Ophrah means a place of dustiness. That's what it means. You can look it up. Don't do it now. Don't get involved in Googling stuff while I'm talking. That'll distract you, okay? A place of dustiness. He said, I'm from a place that when people drive through, all they see is a lot of dust. Okay? You ever been to a place like that? I used to live in a town called Eva, Alabama. 300 people lived in that city. And the men told me when I moved to preach there, if anybody ever stops by the church building and says, we were just passing through and ran out of gas, we need some some help, they're liars. No one just passes through here. That's Ophrah, okay? And not only that, I'm from the smallest family in the tribe. And not only that... I'm paraphrasing here a whole lot. I'm the run of the litter. Why would you choose me? You got the wrong family, the poorest family, the smallest tribe. We're weak. And there's 135,000 of those guys. And you want me to do something about them? God says, you're it. You're it. Saul is breathing out threats against the church trying to kill Christians. When the vote went up, should we kill them or let them go? He said, let's kill them. Thought he'd do much harm to those of the way, he says. He's traveling in prison. Christians possibly put them on trial and have them killed. And the Lord appears to them. You remember, don't you? Bright light, loud voice. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Side note. 
Saul had never met Jesus as far as we know. When he hurt the church, he hurt the Christ. If you talk bad about the church, you've run the church down, you're hurting Christ. That's what he's doing. He's hurting the church. He's hurting Christ. In the meantime, God appears to Ananias and says, Ananias, this week you had the visitation card of a young man by the name of Saul. And Ananias says, whoa, now wait a minute, Lord. I think I'm busy next Friday night. Maybe you give that visitation card to somebody else. And God said to Ananias, no, you got it. You ever been reluctant in what you do for the Lord? You want to do it, you have great intentions, but you just don't do it. Romans chapter 7, you remember, the good I want to do, I don't do. The evil that I don't want to do, I do. I wake up with good intentions, but I don't always fulfill those intentions. God says, verse 14, it'll be a cinch. I'm sending you. You can't fail, I'm going to be with you. When you're doing God's will, you're never a failure. God's will is perfect. Romans chapter 8 and verse 1 says, If God is for us, who can be against us? And I would remind you tonight that as a Christian man, God is for you. My dad used to say, God plus one always equals a majority. Affirmation. The Lord sees in you more than you see in yourself. He's invested in you in a way that he's not invested in anyone that's not a Christian. He's put a spirit in you. He's given you something that is so precious, Stephen mentioned in the prayer. Jesus, though he was rich, he became poor, that you through his poverty might be made rich. Number two, when God wants to use a man, you have God's revelation. God's revelation. Gideon has an encounter with God. In fact, it's more than one encounter. Somebody tell your name and the verse you're reading and read verse 17, please. Go ahead and read the next verse. You're doing well, Drew. Now, folks, if you underline in your Bible, take your brightest highlighter and underline this. The God who made time, the God who made heaven and earth and all that is in them in six days, the God who is omnipotent, omnipresent, the God who is everywhere at once, the God who knows everything and sees everything, the God who never had asked a question. The God who someday will, will breathe and the power of his breath will destroy the evil one. That's what First Thessalonians chapter 5 says. The God who can heal the blind and raise the dead from the grave. And Gideon says, God... I'm just not sure. I'm not sure yet. And so God sits down on the bank. And the God of all the earth waits on Gideon. 
That's a little overwhelming, isn't it? God waits. And he says, God, I'm just not sure yet. And God waits. I'll be here when you get back. So Gideon makes a, a meal at great price in a time when commodities were scarce and offers to God and God supernaturally consumes it. And Gideon realizes, I think I'm talking to God. Somebody read verse 24. I believe it's verse 24. I may have their own verse here. That's it. You messed me up, Mr. NIV. <laughs> we got New American Standard, we got New King James, we got ESV, and I had to did that verse to read out of the NIV of all the verses. Oh, well, thank you very much, Russ. I appreciate it. Gideon realizes he's talking to God, and Gideon makes an altar. An altar is a set of stones set up to put a sacrifice on, but then to leave there so that every time Gideon walked by that set of stones, he'd remember, I encountered God here. I met God here. And Gideon names the altar. Be quiet, Russ. Gideon names the altar. Somebody that doesn't have the NIV, tell me what the name of the altar is. What does he name it? Jehovah Shalom. I don't speak the Hebrew language. I took one semester of it and decided I liked Southern English better. But I do know a little bit of the Jewish language. I knew Jehovah, Yahweh, the sacred name of God, the name that many Jews even to this day will not even say for fear they might use it in vain. The name that when the scribe was copying a scroll of the inspired word of God, he would not write that name if his pen had just been dipped in ink lest he besmirch the name of God. Yahweh, Jehovah, the great I Am, Shalom. You know it, don't you? One of, the few, one of the few Hebrew words you know. Shalom. Peace. Can I ask you a question? Do you see any irony in this? Anybody? What's going on? 135,000 Midianites standing outside your back door. You build an altar and you name it, The Lord is Peace. Now here's a lesson. When you get right with God, it doesn't matter what else is going on in your life. You can have peace. Paul writes and he calls it, you know, don't you? Right? The peace that passes understanding. How can you be at peace when the boss just laid you off? How can you be at peace when the doctor just told you that your wife of 30 years has cancer? How can you have peace 
And folks, in the messed up world we're living in right now, I built an altar to the Lord. In the midst of an army of evil, I named it. The Lord is peace. Because it doesn't matter what else is going on in this world. If I'm right with God, it's going to be all right. The Lord is peace. Isn't it a beautiful thing going on here? I mean, get in. Should be, uh, uh, you're in verse 24. 13 verses early, Gideon's hiding in a cave. And now he's out in the public building an altar to God, setting it on fire and naming it God's peace. The Lord is peace. The natural consequence when you make a commitment to God, maybe for the first time in Gideon's life, and we'll talk about his past in a few minutes, he felt peace, at peace with himself. No matter what the circumstances are, when you're right with God, you can have peace in the middle of it. God's affirmation, God's revelation. Step number three, God's confrontation. God's confrontation. Gideon gave God a test, and now God gives Gideon a test. If you don't get anything else out of this, understand this. In all likelihood, before the Lord will use you in some significant way, there will be a time of testing. And the test is one, it's a one-question test. One question. Who's first in your life? It's the only question. I don't know how good you do on test. I like a lot of questions on a test because I have a good opportunity to maybe get a percentage I'll write. <laughs> you miss this one, you fail. One question. Who's going to be first? So, um, who in here knows the book of Judges and the cycle? You know the cycle? Matt? Mike? Mike? Give us a cycle. That's pretty much it. Israel serves God. They turn away from God. God raises up an evil empire to overtake them. They cry out to God. God provides a deliverer. They repent. And then they wash, rinse, and repeat. 300 years of that. Othniel, Hid, Shemgar, Deborah, Gideon, Bimelech, Tola, Jair, Jephthah, Ibzan, Ezan, Abdon, Samson, Eli, and Samuel. Fifteen judges in that cycle. Gideon is one of them. That's the background. But they're doing something interesting with Gideon. It's different than some of the cases. With Gideon, what, what's happening in his day is they're trying to worship the God of heaven and... Baal, the God of heaven and Baal. They're trying to worship both. Um, guess what? That's a lot of Christians today. I worship the God of heaven, but also worship my career. I, I worship the God of heaven, but 
I also worship my family. I worship the God of heaven, but I also worship my country. I worship the God of heaven, but I also worship my political party. I worship the God of heaven, but I also worship my recreation time. God plus. And that's what you got going on with Gideon and Gideon in his day. So God says to Gideon, Gideon, I've got a job for you. I want you to go out there, verse 25, and I want you to tear down that idol that your dad built to a false god in your little village of Ophrah. Your text may say the Ashereth. It may say the Ashereth pole. The word Ashereth simply means another god. God said, Gideon, before you can serve me, you've got to tear down the idol in your life. What's the idol in your life? It may be a spiritual test. Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, the very first command is repeated over and over again all the way into the New Testament that we live by. Have no other gods before me. It may be an emotional test. So, somebody that knows the story or that's read ahead, where was the Asherah pole? Where was it? Where was it located? Hmm? In his father's backyard, his father's yard. The test may be, are you going to put me first or your family first? That's an emotional test. Some of you have been through that test, I imagine. Am I going to let my family keep me from worshiping God or am I going to worship God the way God wants to be worshiped? You ever find yourself limiting your Christian life because of what other people may think? I have in my life at times. It never ends pretty. It was his dad's idol. <clears throat> so he goes and uh, Hulk smash, okay? He goes and smashes it. He tears it down. Who's going to pay for this thing? Um, third, it may be a physical test. When, we've said where, when did Gideon tear the pole down? Now, I think one of the most dangerous things we do with the scriptures is speculate. But I'm going to speculate here a little bit. Why do you think he tore it down at night? Yeah, he's scared. I mean, you ever tried to do something really stupid? At two in the morning, <laughs> now you're lying. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you do it. You do it in the middle of the night. That's when we do dumb stuff because we think nobody's awake to see it, right? Gideon goes at night. I imagine speculation here because he's afraid. I mean, this pole's in his fa- and and what happens the next day? They wake up. The pole's been torn down. And a mob gathers. And the mob starts threatening Gideon. It's a physical test. Verse 28, he could lose his life. Now look what happens in verse 31. Somebody give me a name and read verse 31. Tell me translation in verse 31. Anybody that wants to. Okay.
Okay, so let me ask a question. Who is Joe Ash? Gideon's dad. The poles in Gideon's dad's yard on his property. I think it's a safe assumption that he's probably worshiping that false god. Gideon stands up, does what he ought to do. Look who comes to his defense. His dad. Courage is contagious. And when you do what is right with faith, even in the face, even in the face of fear, when you're courageous, even when you're not sure of the outcome, oftentimes you'll be surprised at what happens. If Baal's really God, let him defend himself. Pretty sharp, isn't it? Step number four. You have Gideon's transformation. This is where Gideon gets God's power in his life. Verse 34, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. Literally, the Spirit clothed himself with Gideon. God works in the world, but he does it through people who are usable. And here's the point of, one of the points of this point. One of the points of this point. That's not very well worded, but here's one of the points of this point. Before God uses you for something great, there may be a test. And if you're never tested in your Christian life, there's probably a reason. And the reason is probably because Satan already has you. If Satan's got you, he doesn't have to test you. He's not going to tempt you. Why would he tempt people who's already got? Power in the Christian life comes after testing, not before. So Gideon responds correctly. And then you have the rest of the story. The rest of the story. The part of the story we know, right? And this is where the story gets fun. God says to Gideon, Gideon, go out and make an announcement. Everybody who's ready to fight, the Midianites, come stand with me. Now, let's, let's do a couple of things here. How many of you men here have made announcements at worship services? How many of you have made? How many of you in those announcements have said, we need people to sign up for whatever? How many people do you get? A couple. <laughs> Five, maybe, if you're lucky, right? Let's do this. Um, Jordan, I'll use you. Jordan, imagine for a moment that you become convinced that you need to start your own militia. I'm not telling you to do this, but imagine you become convinced you need to start your own militia. Jordan, how many people, if you made the announcement, by the way, I'm starting a militia, I need everybody to join that's willing to join, how many people you think would join your militia? I'm in the wrong state to do this. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, how many folks do you think you could get to join your army? <laughs> Gideon gets 35,000. Excuse me, 32,000. Gideon goes out and makes an announcement, I'm starting an army, I need 32, and 32,000 people sign up. 
I doubt any of us in this room could get that many people. You might get your family and maybe a couple of folks in your community and maybe a couple of buds you work with and maybe a couple of their friends. But if you could get more than 100, I'd be surprised. Some of you are saying you don't know Alaska. I don't know Alaska, but I'm telling you, it's a whole lot easier to talk than to do. 32,000 people say, I'm ready to fight. God looks down at the situation he surveys and he says, Gideon, you got a little problem here. <clears throat> you see? And God, Gideon says, wait a minute, God, I got it figured out already. I see the problem. There's 135,000 of them and 32,000 of us. Let me go get some more folks. And God says, wait a minute, Gideon, you don't understand the problem. You see, the problem is you got too many people. Tell everybody who's afraid to go home. And there were 22,000 honest people that day. They went home. 10,000 stayed. And I don't know about you, but if I was Gideon, I think I'd be kind of thinking, hmm, I don't know how well this is going to work. 10,000, 135,000. That's a lot of people for me to take care of if I'm going to hold up my end of the deal. So God says, Gideon, you got a problem. God says, yes, Gideon. Gideon says, yes, God, I know. We need to get more people that aren't afraid. No, Gideon, you got too many people. Take them all down the brook, and those that bend over and drink with both their hands, send them home, the people who hold their sword and lap up like a dog on the other hand, tell them to stay. (laughs) Stephen, you know I like numbers, right? You know I tend to overestimate, right? I think I could have found a thousand at least that day. <laughs> I counted on a thousand. Gideon found three hundred. It's not a preacher's count. Three hundred people. And God says, Gideon, we got them right where we want them. <laughs> I, I don't know if God chuckles a lot, but this had to be fun to God. You know what God's doing? God is making a point. He's making a point. When this victory is done, and it will be my victory, just like the Christian life, it's already done, folks. The victory has already been won. I went to an Alabama, <coughs> that's that football team that plays in the great state. I went to an Alabama Vanderbilt football game. Anybody know how that works? What? No. Bama beats them by... A hundred. <laughs> it's an overstatement of the case. Thirty every time, okay? It's a long-standing game. Bama destroys them every year. We keep Vanderbilt in the SEC because of their academic standards. They make the rest of the schools look good. I went to the Alabama-Vanderbilt game. My friend Barry and I were sitting together at Vanderbilt. A friend of mine designed the stadium there. We're sitting in the north end zone. We get there early because we want to see all the festivities. The stadium there only holds 39,000, 56,000, not a lot of people by SEC stadium standards. While we're sitting there, a man comes walking up. He's got a three-piece suit on. It's 90 degrees, September in the south. Sun bearing down on us. 
He has a gold chain and a watch. Beside him is a little girl, 10, 9, 11 years old, with a Vanderbilt cheerleading outfit on. His granddaughter, no doubt. They sit through the game. Near the end of the third quarter, Alabama scored yet again. We're ahead by 42 points at this point. When that happens, almost every Vanderbilt fan in the stadium gets up and starts leaving. The game's over. It's done. The granddaughter, now virtually empty stadium now with a few Alabama fans sitting around, they're still there. The granddaughter, when these people get up and walk up, looks at her grandfather and says, Pop, is the game over now? And the granddad said, Honey, the game was over a long time ago. The clock just hadn't run out yet. That's Christianity 101. The game was over a long time ago. God just hadn't stopped the clock yet. God knew where this was going to end. <laughs> 300 verses under 35,000. Who cares? So God says to Gideon, Gideon, you need to equip an army. So Gideon gets his number two pencil out and his notepad and says, all right, what do I need? Now, some of you are military people. Who in here is military? All right. Your name is? Michael. Thank you. Okay, Michael, you have the shopping list of the most powerful nation on the earth. And you're going to go to war. And you get to select what munitions you're going to take. What do you want? Say it loud, I can't hear you. Okay, a lot of 50 cows. I guess that's a gun of some sort, right? Okay, what else do you want? I heard you, who said it twice? Who said Drone. You want, a, you want a bunch of drones. Right now, you want drones, right? What else you want? Apaches. Okay. Any trouble, they can take care of it. Maybe a couple of stealth bombers, right? I mean, so again, he gets his pencil out and his notepad, and God says, all right. Write it down, Gideon. First thing, give everybody a torch. Okay, 300 torches. <clears throat> okay, God, what else? Get everybody a clay pot. You ever not understand some of the commandments of God? You ever wonder why God says do something that doesn't make... You ever know why God says you take a person and you put them in some water and you dunk them under that water and I will cleanse their sins based upon their belief, their faith, and my grace? That doesn't make any sense, does it, humanly? Imagine some foreigner coming to here that's never seen that before and they see us do that. They think, what in the world? 300 clay pots. <laughs> You're God. What else? 
give everybody a trumpet, a bugle. Wait, wait a minute now, God. Are we equipping a marching band <laughs> or an army? Bugle. 300. Costco may have them. All right. What else, God? That's it. Get in here, so I want you to do. Get everybody a clay pot, a torch, and a horn. Middle of the night, take your 300 men. Surround where the Midianites are encamped. And when I tell you to give the signal, you give the signal. And when you give the signal, have every man there take their clay pot and break it and the torch will shine out and have them blow their trumpet and say for God and for Gideon and the Midianites will be scared to death that's a few hundred will look like thousands and they'll wake up in their PJs in the middle of the night and they'll pull their swords out and they'll start killing each other So sure enough, they surround this midnight camp. God gives a signal. Men shout for God and for Gideon. A hundred thousand Midianites kill each other. While the Israelites just stand to watch. And the other thirty five thousand They ran away. And Gideon, the chicken-hearted, his picture appears on the cover of Time magazine. He becomes a national hero. You don't think God could use you? God has a vested interest in using the most unlikely. He can use you. Let's pray together. Father, I'm thankful for this time together. I pray that we have not done any injustice in telling this story with words that sometimes are used from today's vocabulary, but that we've been true to your purpose and to your truth, and that we have in some way or another helped us to see that you can use the unlikely and that you can do great things through us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.